positivity paradox is that when you feel like you have to be positive, you feel worse because you're required to do what's called surface acting. And that's also, I think it's very similar to emotional labor. This shows up a lot in uh, customer service jobs. So if a customer is being really rude to you and you kind of put a smile on your face, pretend like they're being totally reasonable and take whatever vitriol they're spitting at you. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a speaker, author, and illustrator. She's an expert on how to make work better and is the co-author and illustrator of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, No Hard Feelings the secret power of embracing emotions at work. She's currently head of content at Humu, a company that uses behavioral science to make work better, where she helps teams and leaders develop the skills and habits that allow them to unlock their full potential. Prior to joining Humu, she is creative director at Parliament, an executive learning and development company. She's also the executive editor at Genius and was previously an analyst at the Analysis Group. She regularly leads interactive, scientifically-backed workshops about how to build resilience, help remote workers avoid burnout, and effectively harness emotions as a leader. And she's had her work featured by the likes of The Economist, Lifehacker, The Freakonomics Blog, and NPR, just to name a few. So please, help me in welcoming our guest today, someone who has the magical skill of eyeballing the leftovers and then choosing the absolute perfect Tupperware container, Liz Fossling. Liz, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I appreciate having you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, and I got to give a shout out to our mutual acquaintance slash friend, Mark Freeman, for uh, helping set this up. I really appreciate him for reaching out to you and, and, and linking this up. So I'll be remiss if I didn't shout him out right at the start. But yeah, Liz, thank you so much for taking time to come out and be on the show today. Before we get into your book, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. So talk to us about where you grew up and what it was like there. Yeah. So I was born in San Francisco and but would say I grew up more in the suburbs of Chicago. But my parents are, I'm an only child. My parents are my only family in the U.S. So I spent a lot of time going to like Denmark, Norway, Germany during the summers. So I don't really feel a deep hometown connection to anywhere necessarily. But yeah, I think it's probably fairly, when I was in the suburbs of Chicago, like a fairly normal Midwestern upbringing. And yeah, I, I definitely, I one one really vivid memory that I do have though is when I was eight, my parents came to school. It was like a meet the parents day. 
And I remember one of my friends asking me like, oh, your parents, they speak really differently. Like they have a strong accent. And what stuck out to me was that until that moment, I had never picked up on the fact that my parents spoke differently than anyone else. It was just like the way that they spoke. Um, And so I've always thought that was an interesting like child psychology moment of just how we're not even aware of differences sometimes when it's just, we kind of take it like, this is how it is. This is what they do. Yeah. It's really, it's really interesting because I grew up as a child of immigrants as well. Right. But I can Mm -hmm. imagine the, it's interesting because like, you don't look like you're a child of immigrants, right? Like you look like your parents are American and you're born Mm -hmm. in America. So I'm interested to see what that immigrant experience was like for you. Did you ever kind of feel different from the other kids that were in your neighborhood or school growing up? Yeah, I definitely, it was interesting. I think I was at the same time more proud to be an American and also less proud to be an American than other people because my parents would often say that they came to this country because they had more opportunities and there's a lot that happens in America that wasn't possible for them before. And at the same time, I would still go back to Europe. Um, And this was mostly when I was older and when Bush was elected. uh, And I would just hear, because I also can present in Europe as like very European. (laughs) And so then people would just start talking about America and how bad the government is and they can't believe that people elected. So I think I both saw the opportunities that America presents for some people, but then also heard the unfiltered European hot take on everything that's wrong with the U.S. And something that I've found common amongst a lot of children of immigrants is the choice of career paths that our parents lay out for us. It's either lawyer, doctor, or failure. Did you have the same kind of I had lawyer, doctor, banker, or failure. And, but you ended up you ended up studying economics, right? So you kind yes. of went into banking. Yeah. So my dad is a doctor, and so economics, and then I also studied math was like a was a fallback because I passed out at the sight of blood. So it was okay. Now that you're not a doctor, what else is quantitative that you could study? And so that definitely informed my career path. I don't know if my parents ever explicitly said this, but I harbored the belief that pursuing art or pursuing a creative path is just a really wonderful way to be poor for the rest of your life. (laughs) And so, yeah, I definitely have the indoctrinated in me sort of quantitative skills, get as many degrees as you can. And then also this idea of being a professional is you don't fail, you don't fuss, and you certainly don't feel. You just do the job and try and sort of solidly climb the ranks. So yeah, that I think until I was like 25 guided my career choices completely. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm very similar to you in uh, in that sense. Like my parents wanted me to be a doctor, but I can't stand blood. Like it freaks <laughs> me out. And I ended up studying economics uh, as well for for my first undergrad. That's um, so funny. Yeah, we. That's great. <laughs> it's interesting as well because like I'm I'm originally from California and I moved to the Midwest in like the south of Chicago in normal Illinois for for grad school. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. So huh. it's, it's like we're we're like crossing paths almost. It's like you're Yeah, that's funny. It's cool to discover those commonalities. So what kind of kid were you in in high school and what did you think your future would look like when you grew up? Yeah, I so I went to kind of a woo-woo creative private school till eighth grade. I had 15 people in my class that I started with in fourth grade. It was the same 15 people until eighth grade. And then I went to a really large public school for high school. So that transition 
what, and none of my friends from the private school were at that high school. So I would say as a high schooler, I was mostly depressed for all four years, just probably a mix of hormones growing up and then not having my friends and feeling really out of place. So the person I wanted to be in high school was just someone in college far away. And then in college, that's when I sort of had more crystallized career ambitions, where once I started studying economics and math at one point in college, I really wanted to be an investment banker. And looking back, I cannot believe that that was my life's dream. (laughs) I think I would have been absolutely miserable. But yeah, I saw myself as working at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, pulling long hours, just sort of climbing the ranks at one of those institutions. Yeah, that was me in high school as well. I saw the movie the the boiler room. Did you see that movie at all? I haven't. No. Oh, it it made me want to be like a stockbroker or investment banker. That's why I ended up studying economics, and never ended up going that route. But yeah, that it's it's funny because boiler room is about people who were selling like junk bonds and junk stocks and getting rich off of it. But anyways, uh, but you you ended up going to college in one of the Claremont colleges. Was it Harvey Mudd? Right? Or I was at Pomona, Pomona but college, yeah. they're all right next to each other, so yeah. very similar. Yeah, I used to live in Pomona for a small amount of time walking distance to like the Claremont area. Oh, cool. That's so funny. There's so many missed opportunities for us to cross Uh, paths. uh, You wouldn't want to know me back then. I was a lame-o. I still am a lame-o. I was blamed. I wanted to be an investment banker. (laughs) That's awesome. Investment banking is awesome. But I remember clearly there's like two of my favorite pubs, or three of them actually, that, that I really enjoyed. There was the Press Club. I don't know if you ever got a chance to go there in Claremont. And then there's a place called the, I want to say it's called like the Abbey or something like that. It was like a Belgian mm-hmm. style place where you can get all these craft beers. And then there's oh. really crazy like dueling pianos jazz bar that I can't remember the name of. Um, I remember the press club. The other two, I don't remember. Yeah. We spent a lot of time on campus. So it wasn't like a go out on the town type of college, but yeah. it would have been fun. It was Claremont is very... It's very quiet. (laughs) I never found like a place to go and be a college student and have a great time. Yeah. It is a cute little town though. Yeah. Yeah, Um, it is. That's cool. It's cool getting to to know where you're from and and what it was like there. Uh, Let's go ahead and jump into your book. But, you know, before we do this, let's, let's help us get some clarity on what even is an emotion. Yeah. So there's actually not an agreed upon definition of an emotion. So if you ask... 10 different researchers, you'll probably get 10 different definitions. But for the purposes of the book and this conversation, we can just describe it as a strong feeling that results from your circumstances, your mood, some kind of intuition. It's just like a strong feeling that you have. And so what would you say would be like some skills when it comes to emotions kind of for dealing with them in our day-to-day life? You lay out three core skills kind of towards the the end of the book. I know I'm Starting at the end of the book, we'll get to the the beginning and talk about some of the other stuff. But I I found it really uh, interesting that you had these three core skills for dealing with emotions in our day-to-day life. You could share that with us. Yeah. So I might update them because the book came out two years ago. So I think what I would say now, the three core skills are still really similar, which is the first is acknowledgement. And I would term that as partially emotional granularity, which is the ability to get really specific about what you're feeling. And that's been linked with all kinds of positive outcomes. So if we, instead of saying, I feel bad, we can say, I feel frustrated. I feel disappointed. I feel exhausted. That lets us more easily pinpoint the need behind our emotion. So that is first granularity. 
Then there's fluency, which is expression. So how do you talk about that emotion? You know, if you are frustrated with someone, how do you approach them? How do you have that difficult conversation without, you know, stepping on each other's toes? And then the last is understanding, which goes back to this idea of pinpointing the need behind a feeling. So every emotion is sort of a result of some kind of stimuli. And we can talk more about how to parse out what you should listen to, what's more noise that maybe isn't as relevant to the situation. But it's still really useful to try and sit down and say, why am I feeling this? Because then you can address what's going on. And you talk about it pretty early on in your book as well. This really cool distinction between emotional intelligence and being reasonably emotional. Talk to us about that, that distinction and what's the difference between these two kind of ideas. Yeah, so emotional intelligence often has more to do or it's described more often in the context of how you're interacting with other people. So you walk into a room, can you perceive, are people anxious? Are they paying attention? And reasonably emotional has a little more to do with what's going on within you. So when you have a feeling there's no one else around, can you parse out, okay, this is why I'm having this and should I actually act on this? So an example there is if you've been stuck in traffic for two hours and you're feeling irritated and you go into a meeting and you find the other person really irritating, it's they're probably not irritating. You're probably just carrying that commute with you into the meeting. And so that's when it's really important to do that emotional, reasonably emotional, rationally emotional, whatever you want to call it, work of saying like, I need to set this aside because it's not fair to the other person and it has nothing to do with them. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like growing up, it was always like, oh, emotions, you know, you got to keep them at bay. Don't bring them to work, leave them at the door type of thing. But now I don't know if I don't want to call it like a movement or whatever, but it's like it, now people have become more smarter, more aware that actually, you know what, we are okay to express ourselves, to feel these emotions. Like, what, what do you think has caused that ch- change in, I guess, belief or stance in people over the last few decades? Yeah. I would think there's a lot that has contributed to that. Probably some of the leading forces. One is women entering a lot of more traditional workplaces. So I think the way that men are socialized often is keep the emotions suppressed. You're not, you know, if you're if you're emotional, you're not rational. There's sort of these two, and it's a false dichotomy, but that's put out there a lot and more often for men. And so just with women coming in, you know, they tend to be socialized to talk more about their feelings be more emotionally intelligent, be more perceptive about people's needs. So I think that sort of socialization around genders and then more women in the workplace, more diversity in the workplace in general. So if you have people with different perspectives, it can feel a bit uncomfortable at first, but it's actually good to have that kind of conflict, but it just requires you to be able to navigate differing views, understanding how to make a space in which people feel safe sharing who they are. And then the third one, Yeah. I mean, the past year, especially, I think has really accelerated all of those trends that already existed. So I'm hearing in a way that I've never heard before, companies really putting well-being at the forefront, being concerned about burnout, having conversations about racial justice that never existed in the workplace before. So from just a variety of angles, I think talking more about our identities, our feelings in the workplace is it's just become impossible to ignore that. Talking about burnout, you talk about this interesting concept in the book about being a work martyr. I don't know if the two are necessarily linked, but it kind of reminded me of that. Uh, Why is it that we have become these work martyrs? 
Yeah. So I think we often complete being busy with feeling important. So there's definitely, and I had this from my parents too, like working really hard, you get affirmation, your boss sends you an email. Like I think the sort of constant pinging of email and Slack and everything, it is in some sense, a constant validation just to have people to respond to. But then we tend to get sucked into our work. And over the past year, especially the boundary between home and work for those of us working from home has disappeared completely. And so that makes it really easy. I found myself many days at 7 p.m. I've been in meetings all day. I have not gone outside. I have not seen the sun. I don't know what time it is. I've had no break between meetings. And then it's, I think once you're sort of in that mode, it's hard to pull yourself out because you start to think, oh, if I take a break, everything's going to fall apart. So there's, there's a lot. I don't know if this is such an eloquent description, but one, one anecdote I'll share here actually was my friend she is incredibly ambitious, incredibly smart. And we had a conversation recently where she said she's realized over the past year, she might have become a little less ambitious because she said she saw for the first time what her life would be like if it was only work. So for the first time, she was not seeing her friends. She was not, you know, she lives alone. So she didn't have anyone to interact with. And she was like, and it was really sad. Like I just wasn't a happy person. And so she's been thinking about maybe you know, like still wanting to advance in her career, but maybe it's not the be all end all in her life. So as somebody who's a fellow introvert, like Mm -hmm. myself here, being in meetings all day is super, super draining. How do you handle that? How do you find space throughout the day to kind of just detach from, from some of these demands that you have of your time? Yeah. I love this question. I am kind of obsessed with zoom fatigue or video call fatigue. Uh, so a couple of things. I think the first is blocking off heads downtime for yourself. And then also, especially if you're a manager, creating with your team. So one of the recommendations I give is to create something called an it's okay to list. And so that's where you're taking these unwritten rules and making them explicit. So saying it's okay to block off time in the afternoon to focus and we should all respect that. So do not schedule over someone's block. Another one is if you can, if you know the person really well, offering to turn the video call into a phone call and maybe both going outside and walking around while you're on the phone. Being on a video call is incredibly unnatural. So if you and I were in a room, you know, I might be looking at the window, I might be taking notes, but you would know that I was paying attention because we're in the same room together. But now, like if you took what we're doing now and did it in person, I would stand three feet away from you and I would just stare at you for an hour and 15 minutes. And I think it would make both of us highly, highly uncomfortable. And not only am I staring at you, I'm staring at myself. So I think turning off a video when possible is, is a small break. Um, hiding your self-view, I think can actually reduce your anxiety a lot because research shows that if we if there's a video of ourselves, we look at ourselves 70% of the time. And so you're hyper-analyzing your expressions and how you look and yada, yada. Um, so yeah, I would say carving off blocks of time, normalizing that within your team. Oh, one last thing I'll say here that I found useful is switching to... 25 or 55 minute meetings to give yourself that five minute break and actually starting the meeting instead of 10 a.m., starting it at 10.05 a.m. Because what I've seen is if you start at 10 a.m., everyone just blows past 10.25 and suddenly you're, you don't have that break. So if you actually start meetings later, then you're building in that break time. I really like that idea and that tip of blocking off time in your calendar to to just say, hey, this is heads down time. This time when I'm focusing, don't even think about scheduling a meeting at this time. 
how do we kind of communicate that to our team? Do we just say straight up like, hey, look, I block off time and this is what I do. Please be respectful of it. Like, how can we make, how can we kind of normalize that in work cultures where people are just like, what are you talking about that? We don't do that around here. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think what you said is great. Just taking being a leader, whatever your role might be and setting aside that time. If you are in a work environment where it's not common, actually expressing why you're doing it. So saying, I'm blocking off this time because I have these three projects and or like, I don't want to be blocking you. So I'm just going to try and finish a bunch of work. And usually once you explain your reasoning, people understand and actually say, oh, that would be useful for me to do as well. And then the second piece is what I mentioned earlier, which is this just getting together as a team and discussing the norms that you'd like to create. And within that, creating space for someone to say, hey, it would actually benefit me a lot to have two hours on Wednesdays when there's no meetings. I've actually I've heard from a lot of organizations that they're experimenting with no meeting afternoons or no meeting mornings. So that's more of an institutional change. But yeah, I think just taking that first step as an individual is a good good way to do it. And it's not as as bad as like somebody might make it, right? Like uh, at first when I was first doing this, I was like, oh my God, people are gonna be like, what the hell? He's so weird. Why is he just blocking <laughs> time and telling me not to schedule time with him? But People are just like, oh, okay, well, that makes complete sense. You work better in the morning. So go ahead, block that time off. I won't bother you. Um, it becomes okay when you just kind of explain yourself, right? Yeah. So speaking about burning out, I was going through some severe burnout type of issues earlier this year just because of all sorts of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that I was starting to burn out until I was just getting headaches all day, was constantly tired, cynical about everything. What are some ways we can identify that we're burning out before it gets to that point? Yeah. A friend recently said to me, so he is a burnout expert. His company is called Join Flourish and they just consult people who are going through burnout. And he said that when it comes to burnout, there are moments when life taps you on the shoulder with a feather. And then there are moments when life hits you with a bus and your job as someone whose role is to take care of yourself is to listen when it's a feather so that you don't get hit by the bus a month later. And small ways to do that are exactly what you mentioned. So noticing if you're becoming really cynical, you, you know, every project you're like, oh, this isn't going to work or this company isn't doing well. If you've become detached, so you're just not as engaged with your work anymore. Uh, every day feels like a slog. There's nothing that you enjoy. I think those are a couple of the, the things to look out for. Yeah, and I mean, it is a serious issue. I guess the World Health Organization has Label this an actual type of, I guess, illness. Is that the right way to call mm-hmm. it? Or, yeah. So it it, it is real, and I, I think it's been exacerbated a lot by this pandemic situation and always on, always at work type of culture. Moving on to another topic here, a topic I think data scientists all love: good paradox. Uh, you talk about an interesting paradox in your book, the positivity paradox. Talk to us about what this is. Yeah. So the positivity paradox is often in response to people feeling burnt out or something going wrong is when you feel like you're forced to be positive. So always look on the bright side, just cheer up, just practice gratitude. Those are all sort of directionally nice things, but again, they place a burden on the person. They're not validating. Things are hard, especially over the past year. There's been a myriad of reasons why someone might be feeling might be struggling. So the positivity paradox is that when you feel like you have to be positive, you feel worse. 
because you're required to do what's called surface acting. And that's also, I think it's very similar to emotional labor. This shows up a lot in uh, customer service jobs. So if a customer is being really rude to you and you kind of have to put a smile on your face, pretend like they're being totally reasonable and take whatever vitriol they're spitting at you, that's exhausting. And so this performative positivity, that's when that actually becomes really damaging to the individual. And you also talk about this idea of the strategic optimist and the defensive pessimist. I just, I love those names. I love those ideas that you had in your book. Uh, Can you talk to us about what they are? Yeah. So the defensive pessimist is someone who worries about the worst possible case scenario and then uses that as motivation to prepare. So I have a tendency to do this. So I'll say like, what if I bomb this presentation and I'll therefore write out a script, I'll review my slides 15 times, do all of these things because I'm focused on this like not failing. Um, and then usually things go well because I put in all this work. A strategic optimist is kind of the flip side. So they're always looking at, you know, what might go right. And yeah, so they envision kind of the best possible outcome and then work towards that. And you share a really cool technique for when you are feeling anxious that's called reappraisal. I was wondering if you could talk to us about how we can use that when we're feeling this tsunami of emotion coming to shore. Yeah. So reappraisal is when you take the physical sensations of an emotion and reframe it. So for example, the physical experience of stress or anxiety, so your heartbeat quickens, maybe your palms start to sweat. That's actually really similar to how our body responds to excitement. And so there's research from Harvard Business School's uh, professor, Alison Wood Brooks, and she found that if you find yourself incredibly stressed, let's say before a presentation and you have all these physical symptoms, you can stop and say, I'm excited to give this presentation. And then that actually helps you perform better because you're harnessing everything that's going on in your body for a better outcome. So, you know, it's not always going to work, but I think it's useful to say like, okay, I have all this adrenaline rushing through me. I'm going to channel it and actually use this to perform better. It's really interesting that it's the same physiological response, right? When you are anxious or excited and you can even use, use that like if you're going for like a, a job interview, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. And instead of being like nervous about the job interview, just think to yourself, actually, this is exciting. I have an opportunity to speak with an awesome company and have an opportunity that could potentially change my life in so many positive ways. And you kind of, it's a subtle shift. Mm-hmm. I guess it, it, did you find that it takes practice to, to start doing this reappraisal or like how, how can we kind of practice that in our day-to-day is it just you know when we feel anxious just say oh actually no it's excitement like it, it sounds hard to, to implement in, in practice yes it's it's very much easier said than done but I, it is a skill to build and it's not i think it's also having reasonable expectations around it so it's not going to immediately change your life and all your problems are going to go away and you're never going to experience anxiety but it does help I think the example you gave is a great one before a job interview saying my heartbeat is quickening. I'm just feeling nervous, but that's actually also what my body would do if it was gearing up for something I really am excited about. And so maybe I can use this sharpened focus to just have faster answers. Like it actually might serve me a bit in this interview. And so that can make you feel better. And yeah, I mean, I think even small, subtle shifts like that can go a long way in calming ourselves down. Yeah, it's just that emotional kind of detachment. Is that what you would call that? Like just not not detachment, but like 
what's that? It's like meta cognitive kind of stepping back and then just realizing what you are feeling, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's where I would say flagging your emotions is really powerful there. So often when we're in the grips of a really strong emotion, it's it, you just feel overwhelmed by it. And so even just stopping and saying, I'm angry or I'm anxious can help you take that initial step back of like, you know, another way to say it is even just to say like, I'm a person who is feeling anxiety. And so you're again, starting to remove yourself just from like, I'm an anxious person. I'm always like this. I'm never able to get it together. So just like, I'm a person who in this moment is experiencing anxiety. But if you can't do that, then just saying like, I'm anxious. I found that to be really useful, kind of jarring myself out of that being in my head so much and taking that first step back to be able to analyze what's going on. Yeah. As somebody who is also in his head quite a bit, I found techniques like that to be very, very helpful uh, mm-hmm. in dealing with some of the uh, crazy emotions that, that go on in this thing. So changing topics again here, talking about remote work now, there's going to be a lot more remote work happening in this world that we're in. Um, can you share some tips for newbies who are coming into an organization where maybe there's already these in-person relationships that have been developed um, and you're joining a team of colleagues kind of in this remote sense as a person on a screen like how can we develop meaningful work relationships if we're coming into a new environment in this virtual kind of world yeah it's a great question and i actually learned a lot i talked to mark about this because he joined humo where i work during the pandemic. And so he started as a newbie and everyone else, not everyone, but a lot of people knew each other uh, and he didn't know anyone yet. And a couple of things he mentioned that I think are really effective are just making it okay, making the new person know that it's totally fine to ask questions and setting realistic expectations around onboarding. So even communicating, you know, we don't expect you to be at full, like fully ramped up until six months. The first month is just about you understanding the organization, learning the details of your job, getting to know your manager. So ask a lot of questions, set up meetings with a lot of people. If you're their manager, I think scheduling random one-on-one. So obviously they should meet everyone on the team, but also trying to mimic what would happen in an office. So if you're new, you bump into someone in the kitchen. If you're on marketing and they're on engineering, you're not going to normally interact with them, but it's still just good to know that person, to feel embedded in the organization. And that's just not happening when we work remotely. So as much as you can as their manager, facilitating that. And then also starting onboarding before they even join. So I think what a lot of companies do wrong is they make a job offer and then you never talk to that person until their first day. And most people's emotional arc, especially in the remote world, is euphoria when you get the job. You're so excited. You feel on top of the world. And then the closer your start date gets, you just kind of go like this. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm so nervous. I don't know what it's going to be like. Why did I even get this? Can I do this? And so one thing I'll say there that actually I heard IDEO, which is a global design organization does, is they do what's called an interview. So it's a combination of interview and enter. And they take everyone who interviewed the candidate and they say, what's one thing that candidate did really well in the interview? What's one skill that you just cannot wait for them to bring to your team or company that you really need? And what's one thing you want to get to know about them personally? And then I think in the remote world, you could send this to that person a week ahead of time or on their first day. So they just automatically get this validation, this reminder of like, you're bringing all these valuable things and a couple of conversation starters. 
Um, so I think being really intentional around those first impressions, those first moments can make a huge difference. Yeah, I really, really like that idea of that interview. I mean, me coming into a new organization, if I ever was, like, I would love that people give me notes about mm-hmm. why they think I'm awesome, like best thing ever. <laughs> but then you also talk about this, the, the user manuals. So talk to us about those, the user manuals, and how can they help with developing and building team cohesion? Yeah, so a basic premise of the book and of life for me is just different people are different. And so it's really easy to bulldoze over someone's feelings if you have no idea how they like to work, how they like to communicate, if they're introvert, extrovert, that kind of thing. And so user manuals, um, Molly, my co-author, and I did not come up with this idea, but we've adapted the idea and created our own, which we call like a guide to working with me. So they have five to 10 questions. Um, You can come up with your own. You can Google online and find one. And they say things like, when do you prefer heads down time? How do you recharge? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? What might people misunderstand about you at first? Uh, What's the best way to communicate with you? What's one thing that drives you a little bonkers in the workplace? Uh, What do you value in a colleague? And it's really nice to actually schedule time and fill these out together as a team. And then you can make an activity out of having every person share what they're saying. And the goal is really to arrive at compromise. It's not... I've heard the question sometimes where people say, so if someone says that they like heads down time in the morning, does that mean I can never contact them in the morning? And that's not the goal of the user manual. It's more to just figure out a way of working together that feels good. So as an example... I did this recently with a team at Humu and our head of design, he really likes having focused time in the morning and I really like having it in the afternoon. And so what we agreed on was that when we schedule meetings with each other, we'll try to schedule it at like 11 a.m. or at 1 p.m. and we'll trade off so that we're both not scheduling over each other's focus times. I really, really like that idea of a user manual, but is is this something that we can implement regardless of you know the depth or length of a work relationship like let's say you've been working with the same group of people for a while now and maybe you don't know each other outside of very specific type of context right how can we implement this without feeling weird about it like i don't don't know if it's just me that would feel weird about doing something like this i feel weird about doing a lot of things but 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 just like hey here is a user manual for me person like how do we kind of make this happen if it's not i don't know if i'm rambling or my question is making sense but i'm just trying to think of ways to to implement this if we're already in a company that has a set culture and we're just trying to do something new yeah it's a great question and one i get these kinds of questions a lot when it comes to emotions at work where people say i'm bought in but i don't know how to start making change and i would say Whenever you're a little nervous about something or you're taking a small risk, it can be really valuable to frame it as an experiment. So saying, hey, I listened to this podcast or I read this article and they do these user manuals and here's all the things that it's supposed to help with. Why don't we try to do this together? I think also if you're working with someone new, it doesn't have to be as formal as here's my worksheet, fill out your worksheet, let's compare worksheets. It can just be like, hey, I think it'd be really useful for us as we're starting to work together more closely to just quickly chat about preferred ways of communication. You know, I think you can, you can sort of, the nice thing is that they can be flexible enough to accommodate any conversation, any team, any scenario. So I would really encourage people 
list out the questions that you actually are wondering about and that it would be useful for someone to know about you. And then you can also just frame it as a discussion, which might be a little less scary than yeah. the full worksheet experience. Yeah, because I mean, I absolutely love all the stuff that you talk about in your book. And, you know, like in life in general, I've been working on myself over the last few years and just trying to improve as a person in both personal and professional kind of life. And with a book like, like yours, No Hard Feelings, which you guys should go get right now, get it on Amazon. I always feel like there's so many, so many good tips, right? But, you know, what if I feel like I have this work persona or work personality or I have like a certain character at work and, you know, don't have this history of bringing my whole self to work, but something that I want to do, something that I want to start implementing. And in trying to implement some of the stuff that you, know, you talk about in your book and maybe whatever other books people might be listening to, feel like you're going out of character or, you know, more, or maybe you're more intentionally starting to try to bring yourself to work, if, if that makes sense. I guess, can you share some tips for, for someone like me who is trying to reinvent themselves to talk openly about it? Is it as easy as just saying, hey, look, maybe I haven't been the best colleague. I want to do better for myself, better for you guys. I want to try something that I read in this book. Here's what it is. Let's do it. Like, how, can we, mm -hmm. how can we start doing some, implementing some of the stuff that we're, we're learning in books like yours? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing I would say is the book is not, and kind of everything I say, it's not be a feelings fire hose at work. You have to be so emotionally expressive. People actually have different preferences and levels of emotional expression. So some people are under emoters. So they just, their natural tendency is not to share so much about what they're feeling. And then on the other end of that spectrum, you have over emoters. And these are people where they feel it, you can tell right away. Um, and so we all live somewhere on that spectrum. And I think if you are an under emoter, definitely trying to, or maybe it's also context dependent. So you can be an over emoter with your friends, but then at work, you're more of an under emoter. I think it's looking for small, safe ways to push yourself a little, but also being comfortable with the fact that like, you're probably just never going to be gushing to all of your coworkers about everything all the time. And that's like not actually not authentic to you. So I'd say first, it's okay to have a different base level of emotional expression than willing to share than other people. But yeah, I, I think it's a lot of it is building the skill. And to do that, it's always best if you can do it in a safe environment. So I would start with someone at work that you trust, that you have a relationship with. And maybe, yeah, you do the user manual with them first. And then the two of you bring it to the team. Or you share a little more about your personal life on a call and see what response you get back. A really great way to facilitate more open conversations or more vulnerable discussions at work is also to ask questions. I think people often feel like, to have a personal connection, it's depending on them sharing everything. But you can just say on a meeting, like, what's been hard for you lately? Or what was a personal win for you last week? So something deeper than how are you feeling? And then the other person might share a little and then you might feel comfortable sharing. So I would say starting small, asking questions, and starting with someone that you trust and already have some kind of relationship with. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Because it been on this this thing over the last few years where I'm trying to really intentionally improve myself and just get better at life and being a colleague and at work in general. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first started doing things differently or trying to implement some of the stuff I was learning, people were just like, what the hell is wrong with you, man? Like, this is not, <laughs> not you. What's going oh, on? no. <laughs> right. And it just felt weird ever since then. And I mean, it, it always feels 
easy to say, okay, I'm going to, maybe I can start a new job and this new character can be me. And I'm going to be this new guy, this new place, like a fresh start type of thing. But not a lot of people can do that fresh start right away. Right. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's really great advice that you get, gave to, to you know, start implementing it where you're at. And if you're curious whether you're an under emoter or an over emoter, you can go to lizmolly.com forward slash emotional dash expression and take the test. Turns out I am an under emoter. Ah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of introverts are. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, un- and and uh, there's a lot of cool self-assessments you guys got there. Maybe if we, we got time, we can dig into them. But uh, I really enjoyed them. I found the the gifts you you have for them are really, really <laughs> funny. It's interesting because I, I took the test for the decision making hmm. assessment, and I've I got something that I, I thought was counterintuitive for me, but it was a in the moment feeler. Um, I mm-hmm. guess it talked to us about what a in the moment feeler is. Yeah, in the moment feeler, how would I describe this? I think it's you tend to make decisions based on what you're feeling in the moment and treat those as important to the decision. And it's actually really, I would say, a, always a good first step when you're making a decision is to stop because there's emotions that are relevant to that decision. And then there are emotions that are irrelevant to that decision. So if I'm thinking of taking a new job and the thought of not taking that job fills me with regret, that's a really important signal. Uh, It's telling me something about, I'm excited. I see this as an interesting opportunity. But if I slept really poorly, and so the thought of taking a new job just fills me with anxiety and terror, It actually might be that I just slept badly. And so I'm less likely to take on risk. And there's a lot of stuff going on. And so in that case, it's important. We advise in the book, like write down everything you're feeling. So regret when I think of option A, I'm also feeling irritable. I'm feeling decaffeinated, (laughs) whatever it might be. And then really figuring out like, which of these feelings should I consider data signals that I should include in my decision-making process? And which are really just noise. Like they're still valid feelings. I'm still experiencing them, but they're not necessarily related to this decision I'm making. Yeah. I like prize myself on being, you know, Mr. Stoic philosopher who doesn't let his emotions cloud his decisions unless he takes a step back from it. I was like, oh my God, I'm actually in the moment. <laughs> like this. So, so counterintuitive <laughs> to me. But, but I, I really enjoyed these uh, assessments that you guys have. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend you guys check them out. And they're all for free on the website. So definitely check that out. So let's talk about criticism a little bit. I don't know what it is, but I feel like criticism is kind of like destructive in a sense. Like if you look at the Mm -hmm. definition of word, it's the expression of disapproval of someone or something based on perceived faults or mistakes. So by definition, it's like kind of a negative thing to be getting, right? But how, Mm -hmm. how can we change that? How can we give criticism that actually helps someone and not make them feel like a piece of shit? And on the flip side, how can we receive criticism without feeling like a piece of shit? Yeah. So I'll start with giving criticism that's helpful. The first is, the first point I would make is make it specific. So too often we hear, you could have been better in that meeting or that email just wasn't so good. And that's just horribly anxiety inducing because I have no idea what to do based on you could have been better in that meeting. So helping the person see, like offering them a next step or getting as specific as possible so they can easily figure out the next step. So maybe saying, you know, in your presentation, you just immediately dove into the material. It would have been really great if you first gave like, here are the three points I'm going to make today to ground everyone. 
so specific. And so it's the person is not going to spiral into this, like, am I a horrible employee? Do I do anything right? Because it's like, nope, I just got to add this slide and we're good to go. And then a great way to give that kind of feedback is to frame it around bridging the gap. So saying, you know, you gave a presentation today. These were some strengths around it. I really believe that you could just nail these kinds of situations. And so you could have people have an emotional arc, be more influential, um, and really get your main points across. And the way to get there is to like add this slide to do blah, blah, blah. And so there again, you're framing it as, I believe in you. Here's the picture of where I really think you can go. And then I'm going to offer you advice and mentorship along the way. So again, it's really priming the conversation and the person to understand that you're really trying to help them, even if what you're saying is a little hard to hear. And how about for for someone who's finding themselves in a situation now where they're going from being a coworker with someone on the same you know, rung as the, on the ladder of the rest of the group, but now they're responsible for being the manager. Mm. What what tips can you share for somebody who finds himself in that position when it comes to giving feedback? Yeah, I would say I think it's still similar. So being specific, and one thing that I think is actually really important here is often we withhold feedback because we're afraid of seeming insensitive, of hurting the other person's feelings. It's awkward. But when you withhold feedback, you're actually doing the person a disservice. So one of the people that I interviewed for the book, she was a Black female engineer, only Black person, only woman on her team. And she found that when her coworkers would sit together for code review, which I'm guessing your audience all knows what it is, but it's when you look over each other's code and offer feedback, they would just rip into each other. So they would be like, line 71 is so bad. I can't even... Because they just had this friendly relationship and they would just go through the code for hours telling each other what could be better. And when she would sit with them, they would say, it's basically great. Like line 71, I think there's a small change you could make, but overall, I think you're doing an amazing job. And then she finally had to talk with them and say, I'm not going to get promoted because you're not telling me what I'm doing wrong. And I don't want you to withhold that feedback. I want you to just like kind of rip into my code in the same way that you would someone else's because you're like, being the person you don't want to be by not helping me. And so I think that's just something really to keep in mind. Like if you become the manager and you see something that that person can do better, you should tell them. And again, there's, like I said, there's those ways to frame it in a good way, but it's, that's your job as a manager and you're actually helping them out by doing it. Apart from, from the feedback aspect of it, what are some other tips you might be able to share with that, with our audience that find themselves in that situation where they've, teammates now all of a sudden they're their manager right so mm. the relationship kind of does does change is there anything that we should watch out for any traps that we should avoid yeah it's a great question yeah i think they're you know part of being a manager or a leader your job is to create stability and to not unduly burden your people and so i think what you run the risk of happening is that this was your peer that you used to vent to and you used to just talk about everything. And you probably need to walk back from that a little bit because you might be sharing things that aren't actually useful for them to know. You might be venting about something that they can't really do anything about. And then that's a negative experience for them. Uh, and I think another thing to really watch out for is just favoritism of, you know, this person really well, you were on a team together and now you're maybe hiring new reports or bringing other people onto the team. So making sure that you're still creating an equitable environment 
And I think all of that is just kind of inevitably, it might feel uncomfortable at first, but if you do it with transparency, so again, saying like, Hey, I really want this team to do well. I want to support you in your job. And there's a couple of things that need to change because of that. I think just as much as you can be clear about why you're taking certain actions, that can be really helpful as well. And so I'm a very introverted data scientist who happens to find himself in a leadership position. I know many of my audience is likely in the same boat and someone like yourself, who's also a introvert at a very high level leadership position. Can you share some tips for us on how we can set ourselves up for success and how we can set our teams up for success if we've got kind of this reserved introverted type of demeanor? Yeah. So the best leaders act as ambiverts. So that's somewhere in the middle. And one of the great things about introverts and especially introverted leaders is that they're much more likely to listen to the team. And so to elicit, what are people's suggestions? What are ideas? Because they're not the like, well, they can still be charismatic, but they're not the like, I'm going to run the show and I'm going to speak for 90% of the meeting. They're much less likely to do that. The place where introverted leaders tend to struggle a bit more is offering that one-on-one guidance. So having enough, being available enough for conversations, for giving feedback. So a couple of things I would say, one is just making sure, hopefully this, everyone's doing this, but I think it's so important to have like very regular and structured one-on-ones with each person on your team. Um, And to make sure that those are not just status updates that you're actually getting into like, how are things going? What's blocking your work? Is there anything I can do to support you? things like that, that you're having those time for conversations, especially your extroverted reports will want to have that connection with you. And then in team meetings, one of my, I think, especially now that we're on video calls by 4 PM, if I'm on a video call, I just want to get to the material, talk about it and be done. And then I just want to stop talking to people. And so I've had to build the skill of actually saying the first five minutes of this meeting are for personal connection. So let's start out with a prompt and Maybe, you know, depending on the culture of your organization, that can be like, let's all go around and say like one thing we did this week that was fun. It can be like what food is underrated, like, you know, whatever feels natural for you. But making sure that you're still setting aside that time for those interpersonal relationships for like, it's not as much or it is for you, but it's also for your team to come together and feel connected to one another. So I think making a priority to have like scheduled times for just connection. I think that's a really important one that sometimes is harder for introverts. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm guilty of not having regularly scheduled one-on-ones with the people who report up to me. They're kind of more, Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily one-on-ones. They're just group meetings once a week with us three or four chatting Mm -hmm. together. But I could definitely see the benefit of having that one-on-one to further develop that relationship mm-hmm. with a person and, and kind of understand how it can help them uh, better. Can a team culture exist? That's kind of like a separate culture from like the work culture. And how do we go about defining or cultivating a team culture? Yeah. So there's a concept called an emotional culture, which is how you feel in a space. And uh, Adam Grant, who's a Wharton professor, he says you can often get at what an emotional culture is by saying, what is one thing that would only happen on your team or in your organization? And the stories usually indicate something about what that culture is. But yeah, for I mean, a quick example of this is, I think 
in hospitals. This is in the research that Molly, my co-author, and I did. There's often one culture where nurses are interacting with patients. There's another culture where it's just nurses and maybe they need to like vent a little bit. And there's another culture with nurses and doctors. So there's definitely different cultures that form. It's very normal. And then what was the second part of your question? Work cultures, how we can, I'm sorry, team cultures, how we can cultivate them if the mm. kind of larger company culture is radically different from what it is that we're trying to create as a team. Yeah. So I think it's just good to know that you can have a different culture on your team. And the way that these cultures form is it really comes down to these small gestures. So when you walk in to a room or like if you join a Zoom call, are people catching up with each other? Are they saying thank you for someone who's helped them out? Are they offering praise to each other? Does it seem like people care about recognizing someone's contributions? And those are not huge rollouts. They're not big programs or initiatives. It's just as simple as saying like, hey, I really appreciate you having me on the podcast today. Or you know, just offering like a compliment. And that is completely within anyone's control to do within a meeting or a team setting. And so, yeah, I think it's just kind of recognizing what are the, even if they seem small, they can have a big impact. So what are those ways that you can influence the culture around you? And then making it a point to actually act on that. I really like that question that you, you've mentioned. I think it's a great question to ask actually, when you are interviewing for a company, what's something that would only happen on, on this team? Was that that mm-hmm. question? Did I word that right? Yeah. So I've done this and or I've done it in, I think it was job interviews. I've done this in just like interviewing people for the book. And it's funny how either someone has a really quick, amazing response. So it's like, when I needed to take time off, my manager was so supportive and it's this wonderful story. Or they have this like frozen in the headlights moment where they're just like, and you can tell that they're immediately thinking of something bad. And that's usually a bad sign if their first reaction is just to like freeze up and not really know what to say. So yeah, I think it can be a pretty illuminating question. The next couple of questions I want to get into touch on this theme of psychological safety. First question is, it's about, you know, because as a data scientist, we work on a lot of really ambiguous problem statements. And I know it happens to me. and I know it happens to many members of the audience where they might be scared to not ask a question because they don't want to look incompetent or they don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing. So how can we go about asking for, for guidance without looking incompetent? And I don't even know, know if I like the way I phrased that question, but hopefully you get the gist of what I'm trying to ask. The first is I would say, hopefully you're in a culture where you can just ask questions and you don't fear it. So that psychological safety is feeling like you can ask anything and no one's going to think poorly of you or think that you're immediately incompetent. If you don't exist in that culture, I would say flagging just why you want to learn it. So I think that sort of sets you up as really focusing on still being a high performer, competent person who's saying like, Hey, you know, I want to make sure that I'm doing this correctly. Like, can you clarify this piece for me again? So I think adding that little bit of context at the beginning is very useful. And yeah, I mean, I think another thing is, especially in a team setting, yeah, I think adding the context and then it's hard. This is why I paused. It's hard to be the courageous person to do this. But often if you're the one asking a question, other people have also been wondering what's going on. And so you're actually doing a service to the team. Uh, But it does take it takes courage if you're not in a culture of psychological safety to be that person to ask the question. And can we like intentionally manufacture that type of culture in, in a team? 
Like, let's say maybe this team doesn't have a history of psychological safety. Is it something that we can easily or readily manufacture? Or is it, you know, either you have it or you don't? You can. So you have more sway if you are the manager or the leader, just because you sort of set the example and people are more likely to follow your behavior. But even as an individual, it can go so far to say something. Like if you ask a question in a meeting and I just chime in and say, oh, I'm glad you asked that. I was wondering the same thing. That just, I validate your question. I make it look like you're not incompetent. That that just does so much. And again, I think it's really important also to validate unique perspectives. So even if it's not a question, if someone takes a small risk in a meeting and says, I kind of disagree with this, here's why. Actually chiming in and saying, I'm so glad you pointed that out. I hadn't thought about it that way. And I think that's really useful. So it's, again, it's these small moments of stepping in and amplifying other people, validating them, recognizing their contributions that do make people feel psychological safety. But what about those people who just always seem to disagree and and question everything that comes out of our mouth, right? How do we deal with, with these people? So you talk about three, the trifecta of bad apples in, in mm-hmm. the book. You got the the jerk, the dissenter, and the slacker characters, which, you know, I might have played a little bit all throughout my career <laughs> in varying degrees. <laughs> Talk to us about how, who, who these people, who these people are and how can we, how can we work with them? How can we deal with them? How can we navigate um, these types of individuals? Yeah. So if you're the manager, if you have a bad apple on your team, it's really important that you either work with them on improving or ultimately get rid of them because it's true that a bad apple poisons the bunch. Like it will just destroy your team's culture, even if it's just this one person. So the specifics are jerks. These are just people who are really mean, are not going to listen to you, are actively destroying psychological safety. And if you work with, you know, I think kind of the most straightforward piece of advice is just distancing yourself from them as much as possible. And so if the manager isn't taking action, if you can, like when you're in a physical space, sit far away from them, if you can get up and move to a couch, or if you can just slowly move away from being staffed on projects with them. Again, it's just a bad situation. There's not like a clear, here's the right thing to do. Dissenters. So these are people like you mentioned, who are just always picking apart anyone's idea. So they're usually also not additive. So they're not saying like, I don't think that could work. Here's why. And here's a better suggestion. The one thing that we did at a previous company that I really loved was the manager made a rule where it was, you always have to append colon suggestion to any time you dissent. So you're allowed to dissent, but it has to be like, I don't agree with that idea, colon, here's what I think we should do instead. And if you don't have that second piece, you cannot dissent. Um, And I think that creates like a more supportive or at least a culture of improvement. And then the third one, the slacker, if you're a manager, I think it's useful to think about the context in which this person is slacking. Like, is it that they were usually a good performer and now something's happening. And so you should have a conversation with them about it. If it just seems like from day one, they're not pulling their weight, starting to have conversations, but it's very similar. It's like, you know, to have a high performing team in which people feel safe and motivated, you need to weed that, at least weed that kind of behavior out really quickly. Of these three personalities, is there one that you just, just really can't stand that just happens to just really push your your buttons in like the worst way? I think the jerk and the dissenter are very similar. So I would say like the dissenting jerk drives me up the wall because 
it's so easy to point out why something won't work. There's a billion reasons why an idea is not necessarily good or right. And you're always working within constraints. So to me, it's just like, it takes no effort to do that. And then to just sit back and be like, now I've contributed. We're done here. I find it extremely frustrating. Oh, dude, I, I fucking cannot stand those goddamn <laughs> yeah. dissenters, dude. They get on my last nerve. Like, you know, like yeah. there's, that, there's like that classic military line, either lead, follow, or get out of the way. Like, <laughs> these dissenters want a fourth option. They don't want to lead. They don't want to follow. They don't want to get out of the way. They just want to tell you why the thing's not going to work. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, and it's so, they just want to poke holes in things. I mean, I guess it's okay to poke holes with things as long as, you know, like you say, come up with a solution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I cannot stand dissenters. <laughs> cannot, cannot stand them. Uh, so uh, I was wondering if you can help the dudes in data science kind of understand how we can use our voices to support the women in data science and, and just women in, in our organizations in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one is going back to this not withholding feedback. So I'm not advising you to suddenly go up to every woman and be like, here's the 10 things you're doing wrong. (laughs) Definitely not saying that. Um, But to think about... So one of the interesting pieces of research that came up is that male managers will sometimes withhold feedback from women, their reports are women, because they're like, I don't want to make her cry. I don't want to make her sad. I just, I'm afraid of having this like kind of awkward emotional situation. And the predominant reason that women cry in the workplace is not because they're sad, it's because they're frustrated. And so I would say, one, don't withhold the feedback, be a mentor, do it in the right way, be specific, frame it around bridging the gap. Another is just really through amplification. So making sure that you're not inadvertently taking credit or at least not giving recognition where it's due in a meeting. And this goes not just for men to women, it's sort of for everyone is noticing I think on virtual calls, especially like if someone unmutes themselves and then mutes themselves, just being like, oh, I noticed that Kelly kind of didn't have a chance to say something like I'd love to hear from you. Something like that. Again, it comes down on an individual level to these small gestures that do create culture because they establish the norms. That's a, that's a good one that noticing who's like muting and unmuting themselves and, and giving them an yeah. opportunity to speak. If you see that. I, I say this as someone who has unmuted and unmuted myself. And so along those lines, it's also with video calls in particular, especially if it's a bigger group, it's so useful to have a facilitator. So they're kind of the meeting monitor or whatever you want to call them. And their job is just to make sure that there's equitable discussion that people, if someone unmuted themselves, that they can have a chance to speak. I think they can take notes, whatever, but it's it's useful to have that role. What I've also found is if there's say 10 people on a video call, having the facilitator say like, we're all going to go around and answer the prompt and we're going to go in this order so that everyone knows like, okay, here's when I'll be speaking. And it's not this awkward back and forth of trying to figure out who should say what when. Yeah, that's really good advice. Part of what I do as part of the podcast, I, I host two open office hours. One of them is a data science mm-hmm. happy hour that can get up to 50 people at sometimes just all talking around you know, a discussion topic. And I feel like having to, to moderate and monitor that has become such a, a clutch skill to have in this yeah. world that we live in. Yeah, totally. It makes it, it makes the conversation flow a lot more easily. I wonder if you can 
hook us up with some negotiation tips before uh, we we wind down here. There's one line in particular which uh, which can put dollars in our pockets if we use it during a negotiation. <laughs> Talk to us about that. Ah, uh, yes, this is Molly's line. So I. Let me see if I can remember it accurately. Otherwise, you should correct me. But yeah, this is attributed to Molly. And it's one salary negotiation or in a salary negotiation saying that you don't want salary to be a distraction for you and your role. And what's nice about that is you're not creating like an antagonistic relationship. You're really framing it as, look, we both want me to be able to focus, to be here for a long time, to feel happy. And to do that, I need something more. So yeah, that's an effective one is like coming back and saying, I don't want this to be a distraction. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And if I ever find myself in a negotiation, I'm going to to, to implement that. It probably doesn't work well when you're trying to buy a car. Don't use that. Yeah, it doesn't apply to all situations. <laughs> uh, so last question before you jump into a real quick, what I call random round. It is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? giving people permission to feel feelings and that's kind of nebulous but i have found so often a lot in the illustration work that i do people will reach out and say it's just so comforting to know that someone else is struggling with this or that someone else has felt this and that i'm not alone and so i think when we feel bad we often feel bad about feeling bad and then we only make ourselves feel worse so if we can just kind of learn this muscle of I'm having a feeling it's okay. If I have a down day, that's okay too. Um, how can I move forward? What, like what, even if it's something really small, what can I do to kind of improve the situation? I think that would be really amazing. Well, you definitely have helped me. So thank you very much. That's great. Uh, and, and I love that. I love that feel feelings. Uh, you guys signed the book off with that at the, at the very end, feel feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, I really, really like that. It was, um, there's something in, in the book where I guess it was someone's brother was messaging the, their sister and always ending with a, with, with a message. I was like, like be happier or something like that. Mm -hmm. And she finally was like, God, you can't, can't be happy all the time. That's too much yeah. pressure. Yeah. So I really, really like, it, it helped change my perspective a little bit uh, on that. Mm -hmm. I, I would always be like Mr. Positive. And then I'm like, Oh shit, mm -hmm. positivity is bad. It's not bad. I mean, you know, like that. Yeah. I think it's really common for us. I have this tendency too, especially when someone is sharing something hard they're going through to just jump into fix it mode. So being yeah. like, here are three things you can try. Why yeah. don't you do blah, blah, blah. And sometimes they just want to be heard yep. and to be understood. So yeah. one, one thing, I'll maybe I'll end with this before we get to the last question. I have a friend who has done a lot of emotion research. And when I came to him and I was like, I just need to vent about something. He said, okay, stop one second. Do you want me to A, listen and validate you and nod? <laughs> do you want me to B, offer some solutions or see how you could fix it? Or do you want me to C, just like vent with you and be on your team? And I thought it was so useful because I was like, I just want you to validate me. <laughs> I'm not here to look for solutions. Um, and so for him, it was like, I want to be supportive for you. Here are three ways that I can do that. What do you want in this moment? So I thought that was a funny, useful I thing. I love that. I love that. Yeah. That, is, that is perfect. <laughs> Uh, so let's jump into the real quick random round here. My first question is, when do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen? And what do you think that video will be about? 
Well, well how close are we? Do you know how close we are right now? Oh, we're pretty damn far. Right now, it's like baby, okay. baby shark with 9 billion views. Oh, my God. <laughs> what will it be? I think... So I love Dogecoin. So I think Dogecoin is going to hit $60,000 and then somehow a video around that will get it'll just break all the records in the world are you dogecoin billionaire already no no no. i'm a dogecoin like thousandaire (laughs) (laughs) i think i put in like a hundred bucks way a long time ago in your opinion what do most people think within the first few seconds of meeting you for the first time oh i don't know kind of what you said they probably just think i'm just like a normal white girl yeah, I don't know. It's probably how I present. I think that like I don't I don't feel like I have a that distinctive of a look. Yeah. Well, my next question is gonna be who do people tell you that you look like? But we can we can skip that if you like. I don't know if I've ever gotten something. I'm gonna say people tell me I look like Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading Pachinko, which is mm-hmm. A novel about four generations of, I believe, a Korean family. I just started it. And let's see if there's some kind of... Well, on my desk, I have Tufty's visual explanation books. So I'm a huge fan of his work. I think, especially in data science, like presenting that information is so important. And that's Tufty's... How, how do you spell that? Edward Tufty. So okay. he he might be retired now, but he wrote a while ago, three books all about data visualization and kind of they're like very nerdy. So you have to be really into data visualization, but just best practices about making sure it's simple, not overcomplicating the data. Like how do you effectively tell an accurate story about data to an audience that might not be data savvy? Definitely gonna have to check that one out. Thank you very much for that. What song do you have on repeat? What song do... Oh no. <laughs> right now I have like a Justin Bieber song on repeat. <laughs> He's got some good songs lately. Yeah. Which, which one is <laughs> um, it? Peaches. It's Peaches? good. Right, <laughs> yeah, gotta give credit where credit is due. There you go. I gotta go check that one out. <laughs> Let's open up the random question generator. The first one from our random question generator is, what languages do you speak? German and theoretically French because I took it for many years, but I can't claim it. And then English, obviously. Who is one of your best friends and what do you love about them? I'm going to go with a corny answer, which is my husband. And I love that he makes me think. I think he's really good at, especially when I have a strong reaction to something, Mm. presenting an alternate perspective and just making me question some of the conclusions that I've jumped to. Uh, So I was watching one of your interviews, I think it was from the plywood something i don't plywood something Mm. yesterday and uh you're talking about how you were at a party just kind of hovering around and then somebody was like oh (laughs) we're talking about this why don't you come on in is that who you ended up married that's the guy yeah Uh, so i this is my introvert networking tip that i don't recommend which is just like yeah like standing near a group of people and hoping that (laughs) someone will eventually engage with you and that's my thing too so i do i'm just like standing (laughs) Um, yeah. <laughs> but when we let's say we're somebody uh, who's part of the circle and we see somebody on the mm-hmm. outskirts trying to come in, how can we make them feel more welcome? 
Yeah. So it's just saying like, Hey, who are you? Here's me. Here's these people. We're talking about X, you know, and you don't have to put them on the spot, but just like, it can be that simple. Or you can say like, what do you think? Or you can, another great way is if there's a natural pause in the conversation, just to start the conversation over. Mm-hmm. It's just giving them the full context so that they feel like they can jump in when they want to. Awesome. Thank you. What's the best thing you got from one of your parents? Legos. So I love Legos and I saw my parents for the first time in a while. Last week I flew to Chicago and they had, they surprised me with a a Lego airplane kit and I'm 33 and I still was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. That's so awesome. Um, Yeah. So never too old for Lego. I saw something floating around on LinkedIn earlier today. And if I find it, I'll give you the link. I think you'd enjoy it. And it was, somebody had a Lego column wall, right? In their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whoa. It was a column that was made of Legos, but it was like, it it was yeah, plastered in some places. So it looked really interesting. And then he'd open up like a little door and you look inside and it's like a Lego disco club with just these Legos just just, I love it. Yeah, yeah, oh I'll, my God. If I find it, I'll, I'll tag you in it or, or send it over. That sounds way, amazing. I think you'd really enjoy that. Uh, what's your go-to dance move? I think it's more just an array of random sharking movements, <laughs> but I'll go with this one. <laughs> uh, you guys will have to tune into the, uh, the YouTube channel for those listening on the podcast to see that. What, what is that move called? That like plugging your it's nose? Called and... the, it's called the like snorkeling or something. Snorkel. <laughs> yeah. Liz, how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? Yeah, so I'm on all the socials except for TikTok. Don't know that. Liz Fosslein, F-O-S-S-L-I-E-N. And then No Hard Feelings is the book. And Molly and I have assessments and guides and other resources at Liz and Molly. That's M-O-L-L-I-E dot com. And then on Instagram as well, right? You got all your illustrations. Instagram. Stuff there as well. Yep. Uh, yep. So link to all of that right there in the show notes. Liz, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really appreciate having you here. Yeah, thanks so much. This was really fun. 